This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third and final episode discussing the work and the life of Emily Dickinson. In episode one, we discussed her style, the context of her life, as well as the one dominant theme of her work, which was death. The poem we featured was one of her most famous, and it was titled, Because I Would Not Stop for Death. He kindly stopped for me. In episode two, we focus on different aspects of her life, her growing up years, her education, uh, those years which have been called her writing years, and her terror, as it has been called, all the way up to her death in 1878. We highlight three popular poems, one being the ever popular Tell the Truth, but Tell It Slant. This week, we will focus on the fascinating uh, soap opera-ish intrigue regarding the publication of her work, which in some ways is an ongoing saga to this day and contain much more <laughs> drama than I ever dreamed. Oh, I know. And it's incredible considering, you know, this has been over 200 years since her birth. And and so to that end, I think we should begin the, her discussion, our discussion about publishing her work on Emily's thoughts about publishing. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that Although the world has enjoyed Dickinson's work for the last 200 years, we do not know her intentions in regard to publication or publishing or printing. Uh, Would she be horrified to know that her private thoughts and feelings have been exposed over the years? Um, Maybe she'd be proud. Would she be embarrassed with how she left her work? I mean, there were rough drafts all over the place written on backs of envelopes that now have been published. There's other final drafts that were on fancy stationery tied up in little bundles and sewn together in homemade booklets. I mean, did she ever express opinions about any of her literary aspirations? What were her dreams? Did she tell anybody? Now, the short answer is that we don't no, not really, which according uh, to my daughters, it's a little creepy on the part of the world at this <laughs> point. The only clue we have is one poem that talks about publication. So before we begin the long and yes, drawn out soap opera, which is the story of the publication of the works of Emily Dickinson, let's read and think about 
Dickinson's words. Publication is the auction of the mind of man. Poverty be justifying so foul a thing. Possibly, but we would rather from our garret go white unto the white creator than invest our snow. Thought belonged to him who gave it, then to him who bear its corporeal illustration sell the royal heir. In the parcel be the merchant of the heavenly grace, but reduce no human spirit to disgrace of price. Uh, you know, so Christy, this poem, like most of her poems on a first read, is ambiguous. <laughs> I know. Let's walk through it for uh, those of us who are unlearned in the ways of her ambiguity. Well, everyone is. You know, how do you know the mind of anyone? Yeah. But here, but this is an interesting idea. She says, publication is the auction of the mind of man. Poverty be justifying for so foul a thing. Well, there you go. It seems that she's saying it all there in the first stanza. She does not hold publication in high regard. Auction, just that word, sometimes can carry a negative connotation if you're auctioning off something. But what about auctioning off one's mind? I mean, one's mind is one's most personal, your most individual aspect. It's a part of your soul in some sense. Having said that, she she goes on to say that monetizing one's work is an expression of poverty, maybe even desperate poverty. She'd rather live in an attic or die in the snow, perhaps, than auction off her mind. Hmm. You, know, you know, that word garret, if you've never heard of it, you're not alone. I didn't know what a garret was. I had to look it up myself. Even though that's my name? <laughs> I know. But it's also uh, an old-fashioned word for attic. Go white, of course, White's symbolic for so many things. It's a suggestive word. Uh, but in this case, does it, when she says white, is she talking about the face of a corpse? Is it something different? Uh, is it symbolic? What does it mean by unto the white creator, then invest our snow? You know, she goes on to say, whether you want to interpret that or not, Thoughts belong to him who gave it, then to him who bear. I mean, she uses a contraction to create a pun. It is corporeal. It's a corporeal illustration. That means it's a representation of your body, a representation and bodily form of our divinity. She compares it to selling royal air, as in A-I-R. I mean, all of this is very loaded language. In the next stanza, it gets even more loaded. She seems to be suggesting that publishing one's poetry is exploiting or perhaps monetizing God himself because poetry comes from God. It's like selling the air that comes out of your lungs. One's mind is one's representation of your divinity, and it's not even yours to sell. Let's read the last stanza. In the parcel be the merchant of the heavenly grace, but reduce no human to disgrace or price. In other words, the reason why one shouldn't sell your work is because it's actually precious. Your work, your mind, your art, it's a priceless commodity. And selling art is reducing the spirit, you know, your your divinity, your, your human spirit, to money, to a specific cost, selling thoughts of God, you know. What do you think of all that, Gary? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think it is certainly idealistic and debatable, and I would guess many would say that only a rich girl <laughs> living uh, the trust fund life could have the luxury to think like that. 
But on the other hand, it is fascinating that she sees herself as being visited by some sort of spiritual muse and her thoughts, she sees them as coming from outside of herself. And I've heard many great musicians say the same thing, uh, that their music is coming to them from some sort of spiritual dimension, that they are being visited by a muse of sorts. You know, but back to your original question, uh, do we think Dickinson would be proud that her works are being read somehow? You know, I'm kind of inclined uh, to say yes. You know, as a musician, and I think I speak for all musicians when I say this, we feel that our music really is best if it's shared. There's just something innate in creative music. It's an expression, and it compels you to share it. And I have to believe that uh, the poetry could be the same. And, and I think there must be something to her copying her poems over and over on fancy stationery. I mean, in uh, the sewing of the fascicles, and it suggests that although she never saw her work shared, that there was a hope that one day it would be. But of course, you know, I can't know. <laughs> no, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, she did, by the way, mail hundreds of poems to friends and family members. I mean, there's thousands. They think that she wrote literally thousands of letters over the years. So she did share her words. She did share her art. She also submitted a few of them for publication, raising money, you know, for soldiers in the Civil War. So, you know, she didn't, you know, make money herself, but she did contribute uh, her words to, to a cause that she believed in. Also, if, as we've talked about before, even some of the letters, the way she wrote them, she wrote them as poems or they're poem-like, and today people argue whether some of these letters should be considered as poems. So uh, do you have an opinion on what she'd think if she knew we were marketing her work to the tune of millions, except for us, we're not marketing the tune of millions. But No, but somebody has. You yes. know, I, I do have an opinion on that. I, I, you know, it's just an opinion, obviously. But in spite of all this theory about publication being the auction of the mind, I don't know. I, I think she would love it. I really do. But having said that, let's get into the story of how Emily Dickinson, the girl who pu published, or really the woman who published only 10 poems anonymously during her life, has become this mega hit icon. Uh, today she's a household name, and not only that, she's a topic of very sophisticated analysis by some of the greatest minds, some of the greatest literary minds in the world. You know, uh, we might say the story of her publication um, starts on September 10th, 1882, uh, a newly arrived faculty wife, the beautiful Mabel Loomis Todd, is invited to sing at the Dickinson Homestead. You know, there were only two people in the living room for the performance, Austin and his sister Lavinia. Susan, by this time, was estranged from her husband and estranged really from the family. Emily was home but has elected to listen from a dark hallway. And Emily Norcross, the mother, was bedridden upstairs in her room. Uh, apparently, it was beautiful, and as the music died away, uh, Emily, the poet, not the mom, sent the visitor a glass of sherry with a note that said, Elysium is as far as to the very nearest room, if in that room a friend await. Felicity or door, what fortitude the soul contains, that it can so endure the accent of a coming foot, the opening of a door. <laughs> what would you do if you get a note like that? 
I would have stared at it like a calf staring at a new gate. I would have been uh, totally confused. I know. I mean, it's just like everything else that she writes. It's difficult to understand at first pass. It's mysterious, beautiful, and, and you can tell that it's you know, happy. She she enjoyed the music, clearly. Well, and I can only assume Mabel thought the very same thing. <laughs> a little bit of confusion. <laughs> the next night, Austin, age 54, invited Mabel, age 26, next door to his house for a party. And they begin a relationship that would become a love affair that would continue until Austin's death 13 years later. The affair was not a secret. In fact, it became common knowledge in Amherst. Todd's husband was even supportive, you know, even though Susan was not. Mabel and Austin exchanged over 1,000 letters professing love to each other. And both Emily and her sister, uh, Vinnie, were complicit in it, even if Susan was Emily's lifelong best friend and hated the whole thing. Uh, this understandably seems to have created a rift between Susan and Emily and created a modern telenovela style, st- type story. Well, it's a strange dynamic for sure. And, and the reason we even care about this, besides the fact that it's just kind of juicy and I, I'm always interested in that kind of stuff, the tea, as we say, uh, is because Mabel Loomis Todd is the reason we even know the name Emily Dickinson today in large part. Five days after that piano performance that you just described, Todd recorded in her journal her impressions of Emily. She said she always wore white and had her hair arranged, as was the fashion 15 years ago. But then she said this, and I want to quote her directly. She writes the strangest poems and very remarkable ones. She is, in many respects, a genius. You know, Todd and Emily would exchange correspondence and Emily would listen to Mabel's voice and to her playing the piano downstairs in her home for the next four years until Emily's death. But interestingly enough, she never allowed Mabel to see her face. Todd was in many ways, Emily's biggest fan and her advocate, ironically, but in another way, there's a sense in which she was also her nemesis. And one of the things that made them nemesis has to do with property. In the fall of 1885, Austin, pestered by Mabel, now they've already had their affair going on for a couple of years, but Austin decided to give the Todds a piece of property so they could build a house. In order for him to be able to legally give deed away this property to Mabel and her husband, he needed Lavinia and Emily to sign off on the official deed. Lavinia did, but Emily did not. She did not, or did not approve, we have to assume, of taking property from Susan and Susan's kids. This would be a hitch after Emily's death, which we will see. As we discussed last episode, 1886 started as a terrible year for Dickinson. She was bedridden. Uh, Neither she nor Susan had recovered from the deaths of Susan's son, Emily's nephew, uh, his name was Gibb, in 1883. In fact, his illness and his imminent death got Emily to go to the Evergreens for the first time in 15 years. But Gibb's death broke her. Besides Gibb, she also hadn't really recovered from the death of several friends, as well as the death of her parents. The doctor who recorded her death wrote down uh, that she died of Bright's disease, and researchers have questioned that report 
for a couple of reasons, one of which it turns out that that same doctor suspiciously and conspicuously wrote Bright's disease as the cause of death for a lot of people in town. (laughs) But most importantly, uh, Dickinson never let him actually examine her. These are his words as others later recorded his frustration in their consults. She would walk by the open door of a room in which I was seated. Now, what besides mumps could be diagnosed that way? (laughs) Today, the general opinion is that she died of heart failure induced by hypertension or high blood pressure, uh, likely caused at least in part by depression brought on the death of her nephew. And for seven months prior to her death, she lay in bed in a condition Vinnie described as delicate. And she died on May 15, 1886, at the age of 56. Well, four days... After she died, they put Emily in her white dress, and they put her into a white coffin. They laid it in the parlor downstairs of the homestead. There's a small and short ceremony. Thomas Winforth Higgins read Empoli Bronte's poem on immortality. Benny put two heliotropes by her hand for her to take to Judge Lord, which was, you know, her uh, romantic interest in the later years of her life. Emily had specifically requested, and this is interesting, that six Irish workmen, the men who had worked at her home outside, she asked that they be the pallbearers. Austin partially honored her request. I mean, he wanted and he got the president of Amherst College, as well as other you know important people, professors from Amherst, to be the pallbearers inside the house. But uh, when they got to the door, you know, these important men of stalwarts of the community handed her off to the men that Emily, the Irish immigrants, the men that she had asked to be her pallbearers. And those men, the six Irish workers and who had worked on the homestead, they took her up to the family plot in West Cemetery. Sue, uh, her best friend and Austin's wife, wrote the obituary in the local paper, and, and this is what Sue said. A Damascus blade gleaming and glancing in the sun was her wit. Her swift poetic rapture was like the long glistening note of a bird one hears in the June woods at high noon but can never see. Then, amidst all of the aftermath of her death, Lavinia went to Emily's room and found a box of hand-stitched booklets full of her sister's poems. I mean, we're talking about 800. It was a total surprise. Then he went to Susan, and of course, Susan knew that Emily had written tons of poetry. They'd been writing back and forth since she and Emily had been teenagers. Uh, Susan knew her sister better than anyone, and so Vinnie asked her to help edit the poems because Vinnie wanted to get them printed. I mean, there were 40 manuscript booklets. There were scores of other poems on loose-leaf paper, Susan took to the task, but it was a struggle. I mean, it was an overwhelming struggle. Uh, Susan wanted to include writings, uh, to use to use Susan's words, rather more full, varied. She thought it was important that if they were going to publish Emily's work, that she wanted she would show a range of Emily's ideas. She wanted to showcase Emily's early letters. Higginson, the editor who eventually did publish Emily's work told Susan that what she wanted to create was, as I quote, and I'm going to quote Higginson because it's so ironic, that that idea was, quote, unpresentable. (laughs) 
Susan thought Higginson underestimated the public's taste and he didn't have any ability to recognize the power in it. Uh, so she just dragged her feet and moved slowly. Vinny got impatient with this and eventually demanded that Susan return all those manuscript booklets and she was going to find someone else to edit them. And she did, but she did it kind of secretly because I think she probably knew it wouldn't be well received by Susan. (laughs) Well received. No, because her second choice was Mabel Loomis Todd, Hmm. her Susan's husband's mistress. Vinnie gave Todd over 800 poems. The record shows that at first, you know, Todd was reluctant to get involved. I mean, this was an enormous task, but Vinnie begged, and she literally begged her to, and so Todd did. But after she got into it, uh, Emily's writings affected her and really shaped the rest of Todd's life. According to Todd, and this is what Todd said, Um, The poetry had a wonderful effect on me, mentally and spiritually. They seemed to open the door into a wider universe than the little sphere surrounding me. And so Mabel started this process. Mabel Todd would spend nine years ordering, transcribing, editing hundreds of poems into what eventually became three volumes. The first volume came out in 1890, four years after Emily's death. Another came out in 1891, and then a third in 1896. Now, if that isn't controversial enough, Todd, enlisting the help of Thomas Wentworth Higginson, um, changed Emily's, Emily's writing to make it conventional. They, quote, fixed the punctuation They took out the dashes. They, quote, fixed. And that's, I'm saying quotes around the word fixed because today we don't think they fixed them. We think they butchered them. But they thought they were fixing the capital letters. They got rid of the slant rhymes. They made all the rhymes normal. The words that had been intentionally misspelled, they corrected. They gave all the poems titles, something that Dickinson had never done. All these changes were mandatory or they wouldn't be printed. Well, you know, another thing that Todd did was actually market the book, and she promoted the heck out of that thing. I mean, giving lectures all over the Northeast of the United States, uh, creating this mythology and romanticized vision of a mysterious poet from Amherst. And uh, in 1894, uh, after the myth of Amherst was famous, she produced another two-volume book of Emily's letters. Although Mabel Loomis Todd uh, has come has come across as um, a villain in the Dickinson story for many reasons, no one argues that if it weren't for Todd, no one would know anything about Emily Dickinson. She created her in the public mind in many ways, and Lavinia perhaps said it first when she wrote Higginson after the first book of poetry was published in 1890, when she said this, But for Mrs. Todd and yourself, the poems would die in the box where they were found. Well, you know, Todd not only transcribed and she not only promoted Dickinson's work, but her transcriptions and holographs of Dickinson's work are in some cases the only copies we have left. She preserved them. And yet, after these first editions of Dickinson's work, the story does not end happily. I mean, not in, a, by, not by a long shot. A feud, which obviously clearly already started, is going to escalate between Susan and Mabel. 
Well, let's be honest. Um, it had started years ago, <laughs> but the scandal went public after Austin's death. Mabel wanted that land that Austin had given her. Uh, Vinny at first said it was okay and signed off on giving it to her, but then she changed her mind. In May of 1896, the case went to court. Vinny wanted to have her signature declared invalid and wanted the land back. It took two years, but she won mainly on the evidence of the Dickinson maid, Maggie Mayer, and Mabel had to return the land. Well, of course, the legal problems affected more than just this coveted piece of property. Susan had all always had her, uh, her possession of hundreds of poems and letters that she hadn't given to Vinny, presumably because uh, she was mad that Vinny and Emily had supported Austin and Mabel's affair, so she didn't give up her poetry. But after that problem with the property, Vinny leaves Team Mabel <laughs> and joins up with Susan. And Vinny gives the rest of everything she has uh, from Emily to Susan. And she wants Mabel's poems back. Well, Mabel's not giving the poems back. She'd been working on these things for years. She thought she was entitled to them. So she refuses to give them back. She says, no, I own these poems. <laughs> Man, can you make this mess any worse? I know. It's terrible. And it is a mess. And it's not just their mess. They pass their mess down, of course, to their children. After Mabel passes away... You know, she gives everything that she has. She really believes belongs to her because she's devoted her life to this. She passes down all of her poetry to her daughter, Millicent. Susan has all her stuff. When she dies, well, even before she dies, she gives all of her stuff to her daughter, Martha. Now, remember, Martha knew Emily. They were close. She had a very big interest in her aunt. Uh, Emily called Martha Maddie. Martha went on to publish her mother's poems. Now, these are poems that Mabel didn't have access to. So she published more poetry by Emily Dickinson that the world didn't know about. She published a book in 1914, a different one in 1924, another one in 1929. She published one in 1930. And then again, there's another one that came out in 1935. Millicent... Remember, that's Mabel's daughter. Well, she published a volume of unpublished poems that she had as late as 1945. Uh. So we get piecemeal all these different books of poetry by Emily Dickinson that no one's ever seen before. It's like a series. So they just keep finding and publishing more and more poems of hers? Well, I mean, they weren't finding them. <laughs> I mean, they had them, but they were releasing them, and this format um, year after year. In some ways, it almost feels like they're competing with each other. And in a sense, they really were because they were presenting two separate visions of who Emily Dickinson was. Each side was presenting their version of Emily Dickinson. And of course, this back and forth is going to go on until both Martha and Millicent die. After Martha's death, her heir, uh, Leedy Hampson, sells or sold, really, Martha's manuscript to Harvard College, which they preemptively claimed ownership and possession over all of Dickinson's work. Todd Bingham, who's Millicent's heir, now think about this, we're down to the third generation. He challenges Harvard's claim to the poetry that belonged to his mother and his grandmother and wins. So now the Dickinson manuscripts that had belonged to Mabel are in 
uh, his possession, and he gives them all to Amherst College. That's where they are to this day. Dickinson's work now is effectively divided between two institutions, Harvard College or Harvard University and Amherst College. There was no standard version of Emily Dickinson poetry until Thomas Johnson published one for Harvard in 1955. And this Johnson edition really became a big deal. Johnson, for the first time ever, when this volume came out in 1955, released a version of Emily Dickinson's poetry as she had really written them without all of those corrections. The dashes were put back, the capital letters were put back, the spacing was put back, all of Mabel's titles were removed. Johnson also made some attempts, although nobody really knows, uh, but he tried his best to put her work in chronological order. Again, when this 1955 edition comes out, the world went nuts. Another, and of course, that's when it really took off and high schools were teaching it and all this kind of stuff. Another more researched version came out and really today what we consider the more definitive edition came out as late as 1998. And that was the version edited by R.W. Franklin. So that's a long journey. Today, Mabel's poems, the one at Amherst, belong to the public domain. So those original poems that Mabel printed, you can download them from the internet, you can publish them, you can put it on coffee mugs, you can sell them. But because Johnson's edition came out in 1955, the poetry of Emily Dickinson that's owned by Harvard is still under copyright. And any reproduction of her work, the money for that goes to Harvard. <laughs> that is one crazy story. I, I mean, know. It reminds me of one of Dickinson's poems about the mind. Uh, you know, Emily wrote a lot about the brain, how it worked in the mind. I mean, and here's a short one. The mind lives on the heart like any parasite. If that is full of meat, the mind is fat. But if the heart omit, emaciate the wit. The element of it so absolute. Uh, you know, that poem speaks about the connection between the mind and the heart. I mean, the mind is completely dependent on the heart. Dickinson says it's like a parasite. And, of course, that's true. No matter, no matter how much we claim to be ruled by our minds, we're not. And that story kind of illustrates that. The drama between the house of Dickinson and the house of Todd. I mean, it's a story of disappointed love. Susan's disappointment in her marriage, Austin's disappointment in her marriage, Mabel's disappointment. I mean, who knows what happened in that triangle? But we mustn't forget that this was always, first and foremost, Emily's story. It was her heart that produced every single one of these now famous poems. It was her wit. It was her heart that kept her from publishing those poems during her life. We don't know why she didn't publish them. Maybe it was love for her father. It may have been love for herself. She wanted her work to be what she wanted it to be in the form that she wrote it. And Higginson wasn't going to do that. He was only going to butcher it, uh, make it presentable. I mean, her heart was in that drawer that Vinnie found that day. And it was Vinnie's heart for her sister 
that pushed her to publish those poems all those years later. And it's a struggle between heart and wit that went forth for three generations, well beyond Emily Dickinson's death. Uh, The final poem I think that I want us to read is possibly one of the most confusing poems of hers. And, And that's a lot. There's a lot of confusing poems, but this is a real confusing one. But in spite of being so confusing, it's also very popular. It was published in the Franklin edition, and it was given the number 764. If you were reading the poem yourself, you can Google it, and you can easily find it. You'll you'll notice that there are several words that are deliberately misspelled, and she misuses the apostrophe, which we know she knew how to do, so she does it on purpose. Scholars really believe that this is intentional, that this is a layer of ambiguity that she wants to add to the poem to give it kind of a pun-like quality. In the context of the story of the publication of Emily's work, I think this last poem is particularly clever and appropriate. Of course, we in no way would know how Emily expected to interpret the poem. We know she wouldn't want her life to be interpreted by it in terms of publication. But the theme holds true, not just for Emily, not just for the publication of her work, but for all of us. This poem seems to acknowledge that coming to life means you're accepting power. And with that, there's this inescapable burden that no matter what you do, you will hurt other people. Your life will be marked by violence of some kind. A violence, which is all of our lives, goes out in the world in unexpected ways. I really don't understand most of this poem, but I'm drawn to it, and I think you will be too. So let's close by reading this very interesting piece of art. My life had stood, a loaded gun, in corners, till a day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head, tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I, then he, may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. Life as a loaded gun, owned by someone, perhaps me, perhaps not me, The union of gun and hunter, it's a strange idea, but it's the context of her life, and somehow it makes sense. Emily famously told Martha, when asked about why she stayed in her room so much, she said this, Maddie hears freedom. There in her tiny corner on her tiny desk with her plants, the light from the window as she looked across the yard at her brother's home, she somehow found not just freedom, but power to push out into the world. Thoughts, ideas, feelings. They've not killed in many ways. In many ways, they've breathed life. It's truly an incredible story. 
Indeed it is. And honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if even now, in this new century, some new fact emerges and the story doesn't at least take a few more crazy turns. (laughs) I agree. Anyway, thanks for listening to our discussion today regarding the work of Emily Dickinson. We hope you've enjoyed these last episodes as we scratched the surface of the poetry of Emily Dickinson and explored some of the highlights of the story of her life and work. As always, we hope, if you have enjoyed it, that you would do us the honor of sharing our work to your friends and students and family and push out an episode on your social media. Uh, text an episode to a friend, play an episode in class for further discussion. Also, remember that if you're an educator, all of our episodes have listening guides to support your students as well as other tools for educators. All of that can be found at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Also, as we always like to say, what can you find there? T-shirts, coffee mugs, posters, all sorts of other merch. Peace out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.